You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. For those of you that haven't been around this month, we're talking about Christian literature, things that have changed people and how they view life and all those things. So last week, David and Becky Groth were here. Do you guys remember that? Sweet. If you don't remember that, you should podcast it. It was pretty cool. Um, and then this morning, uh, we have Rob Stennett here this morning with us. So Rob is like the creative mastermind behind almost everything creative here at the church. And he's probably been around the mill longer than anyone in this room. Probably. Um, so before he comes up here, I just want to welcome anyone who is new. If you are new, please fill out one of those new cards. Turn it in the back. That way we can get to know you um, and meet your face and know your name. Say that backwards. Anyways, welcome to the Mill Sunday School. And everyone, please welcome Rob Stinnett. All right. Good morning. Yeah, I was at the very first mill meeting we ever had. Years and years. I think 2000. Is that? Anyone know what? Any mill historians here that know what the first? I believe 2000. I'm going to say 2000. Aaron Stern may be mad in Fort Collins somewhere that I'm getting this wrong. But uh, it's uh, Love the Mill. It's great to be here this morning. And uh, good friends with Dr. Joe Kirkendall. Uh, We worked on a book together a year or so ago. And so... uh, but I'm an author, that's kind of my background, so when you asked me this talk about literature that has shaped my faith, uh, literature that has shaped my Christian worldview, I think that's a great topic. And so um, I want to ask you to start off this morning to discuss, to discuss amongst yourselves, is there a book or a movie, probably, probably going to be a movie, but a book or a movie or a story that has sort of shaped how you look at something? And more importantly, has it, if you had a view like, you believe something about politics or race or the economy or global warming or some sort of, sort of topic and you saw this movie or documentary or read a book, has it shifted the way that you looked at it and said, huh, I, I did think this, but now I'm starting to think a little bit more on the other side. Is there something that, is, that you've seen or read that has impacted you to change the way that you view about something? So circle up in your table, make sure you know everyone there, and then take about two minutes here and ask, is there something, a movie, a book, something that you've seen or read um, that has shaped you? I want to know from some of the table, just be brave enough, volunteer, raise your hand, and Aaron will get you who, movie or book or something that has changed your worldview. Anyone have any? Be brave. Be fearless. Right up here. Oh, yeah, the guy up front. Of course. (laughs) Um, I would have to say listening to a pastor named Pastor Mark Driscoll from Marcel Church in Seattle, Washington. Um, At the time, I was, I guess, lukewarm towards the church. I wasn't going anywhere with the church and stuff like that. And just listening to his sermons just, I guess, opened up my horizon. (laughs) All right, good. Pastor Mark, yeah, more of a teaching what about stories or a movie? Yeah, back here. Inception. Inception. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I got to stay on my bed there. Why Inception? 
changes the view of um, dreams and interaction and uh, being able to convince people to think a different way and how easy, susceptible we are to other people's influence. Yeah. And Inception's actually an interesting one to bring up because one of the key ideas in Inception is how hard it is to change what someone at their core philosophically believes in that. To change what someone at their core philosophically believes, you have to travel through three layers of dreams till a van goes off a bridge backwards and you're fighting in the snow. That's how hard it is to change someone's belief. Few people know that, so Inception did teach us this. That's good. Anyway, yeah, uh, yeah right up here. Um, I said Adam by Ted Decker. Oh, um, Adam, okay. It changed my view on the possibility of what uh, demon possession may look like and exorcism and stuff like that, just the possibility of it. Sure. And uh, someone also said uh, Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Screw Tape Letters, great one. Yeah, both, both those really good about the supernatural and influences they have and ways we look at it. Anyone else? In the book? Okay, right over here. Yeah, a few of them. I want to hear. Um, I read a book called um, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. And Wait, what was it called one more time? Don't Waste Your Life. Don't Waste Your Life, okay. Um, I read it with 17 or so. And that just kind of switched my view of why we live on this earth and that the main reason we live is to glorify and give Jesus worship. So, yeah. Good, yeah. Okay, who else? I was going to say, like, I listened to the radio theater of screw tape letters. And it kind of changed my perspective on how you have to be careful with, like, your faith because Satan can come in and tempt you. Yeah. And it's just, like, when he tempts you, it's really hard to get out of it because he's got such a... Satan can get, like, such a hold on you that it's hard to get out and know what's the right thing to do and... Yeah, the screw tape letters, if you've never read it before, is C.S. Lewis's book where he literally plays the devil's advocate. He writes as a, I'm trying to remember what it is exactly, like an uncle to his nephew who's been in charge of sort of tormenting this guy's life as a demon. And so he kind of gives him advice on how to really torment people. And he's like, this is what a lot of people's weaknesses are. And if you want to cause someone to doubt their faith, this is a good thing to ask them. And so it looks at us, at the things that we wrestle and everything else. So screw tape's definitely a good one. That's actually the right answer. There was only one right answer, and Star Wars was the answer I was looking for. <laughs> um, well, let, let me jump off from there. Uh, and so we'll, we'll talk about books that have influenced us a little bit more. But um, I'm going to talk today, just so you know a little about, bit about me, I'm going to talk about this from the, in, uh, from the perspective of an, of an author and a storyteller, like uh, Aaron said, a lot of what I do is creative. I have a background in screenwriting. I've written a few novels. And so really fiction and stories is um, what my foray is. It's what I've thought about. And certainly Star Wars was one of those when um, I was a kid. I remember watching it and when, you know, that Star Destroyer, there's that little bitty ship and that Star Destroyer just goes forever and ever. And then all the stormtroopers are fighting the guy and Darth Vader walks out and you see this like, force of evil like you've never seen before. I was like, you had me at hello, Darth Vader. Like, it was just like this sort of like impacting moments because I think stories like Inception and Star Wars, uh, they do influence us. And sometimes they influence us in ways that we may not realize. And uh, what's interesting about a story 
is uh, at their core, usually stories are an argument. They're arguing something, and often we don't think of them that way, but our lives are kind of journeys. Our lives are stories of their own. When we want to not really get to know someone or when we're passing someone by, we just say, hey, how are you? And we say, good. If you're sitting down and you really want to know someone, one of the first questions often you'll get asked is something like, tell me your story. So our lives are our stories, a sequence of events that sort of add up to something more, that means something more. And it's because it's the way that stories are shaped. And so for a moment, I'm going to talk about big ideas of story structure and uh, what that means, and then I'll talk about other books that sort of did this and uh, shaped the way that I thought about it. So um, to tell a story, um, usually, most stories these days, and this goes back to Aristotle and Shakespeare and whatever else, it's kind of been boiled down to a three-act structure. And so it can be moved in different ways or whatever else, but a story really goes in the three-act structure, a classical piece of literature. And so the first, uh, the first thing that happens in a story is an opening image. And we see something that tells us about the world that we're about to enter into. The opening image of Star Wars is the classic one that I just described of the, the small ship, the small rebel alliance versus the giant star destroyer. And that opening image is, tells us a lot. It tells us that in this galaxy, good is very, has a very, very little chance and evil is going to overtake it. And so we see what a, what a strong slope Luke Skywalker is going to have to climb from that opening image. Other ones are, you know, you see in The Hobbit, you see the, the Shire, you see uh, Frodo just sitting in the nice lush green grass. And that's contrasted with what we're going to see through the rest of the movie of him walking through the rock and lava and all that sort of stuff. Inception, I'm trying to remember the opening image of Inception, but uh, uh, something like a dude's dreaming and shooting. And so, uh, <laughs> and so anyway, we have an opening image to, to start off with. The next thing that happens in the story is as we're going along uh, in what's called Act 1, the first thing is an inciting incident happens. So we're introduced to a character, and they're just in a normal world. It could be uh, Luke on Tatooine. It could be Frodo in the Shire. It could be Marty McFly just kind of sitting around in high school. But everyone has just kind of their average, ordinary world. And then there's an inciting incident, which is a call to action. For Luke, it's when all of a sudden the droids leave, and he has to go find them. For uh, Frodo, it's when uh, he's given a ring, and he says, you've got to take this to Rivendale. With uh, Marty McFly, Doc says, hey, you've got to come and meet me at the mall. There's some sort of call to action that someone has to make. The next thing that happens is at the end of Act 1, we have what's called an Act 1 break. And so this is a point of no return for a character. This is a moment when in Star Wars, Luke goes, he looks for the droid. When he comes back, his whole family, his house is burned down. His aunt and uncle is dead. He can never go back to the life that he had before. In uh, Lord of the Rings, Frodo has been stabbed, and he's going, he's going to die, and he's riding off on the horse, and he's nev- he can't just go back to the Shire. If he goes back to the Shire, he's going to die. And Back to the Future, Marty McFly travels back in time, and he can't get back to 1985. He is stuck back there. And so there's, an, there's what happens at the end of Act 1 is some sort of point of no return. In a, in a drama, it'll be much more intense. In a romantic comedy, it'll be much lighter. But no matter what, it's some sort of thing of like, you know what, you can't go back to that life that we saw before. Then the next thing that happens is 
Act two goes along. There's a midpoint which the character has to make another decision. Usually they have a plan to get back and that plan fails and they have to come up with a new plan. Finally, at the end of act two, there's what's called the dark night of the soul. This is just the absolute darkest moment where things look like they aren't going to turn around and things look like um, they're just going to fall apart. And uh, Back to the Future, it's where Marty McFly is. Who's seen Back to the Future? Raise your hand if you've seen it. Okay, good. I just want to make sure everyone... I'm trying to pick movies that I think, okay, most people here have seen. Uh, and so, Back to the Future, Marty McFly's up there. He's playing guitar. All of a sudden, he looks at his hand, and it's starting to disappear. He looks at the picture. His brother and sister are gone. He's about to vanish for time, from time. For Marty, things cannot get any worse than vanishing from time. In Star Wars, Luke Skywalker's there. He's running towards the Millennium Falcon. He turns around. All of a sudden, the next thing you see, Obi-Wan Kenobi takes a lightsaber... Uh, uh, is fighting with Darth Vader. Darth Vader hits him. Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of disappears. His cloak falls down. Luke screams, No! In that whiny voice. He, <laughs> he kind of whines through most of Star Wars and a lot of him, but especially most Star Wars. And so in that whiny Luke Skywalker voice, he's like, No, Ben! And uh, he falls down, and so he's trapped. And uh, Lord of the Rings, Gandalf goes, and that sort of dragon monster whips around him and pulls him down in the lake of lava. And we think that Gandalf is gone forever. And so in the dark night of the soul, it's the sort of moment of like, this is as worse, other than death, this is the, as worse as the things can possibly get for our hero. And then finally, in Act 3, there's a rallying point, and the hero has to come up with one plan, and they figure out the way to sort of go through the final journey. They figure out the way to save the story. And then at the end, there's sort of the closing image, the final thought of, hey, this is, this is where, you know, we found hope or we found, you know, a new journey to, to discover. And Back to the Future, they have a new journey that they're going on at the end. At the end of Lord of the Rings, they have the new journey that they're going on at the end. And Star Wars, they're kind of heroes. And so that's kind of like we see what it took for them to become a hero. So really, in short order, that's kind of what it is to be a uh, to create a story. And so, um, so I say this because part of the reason that we have to understand of why stories affect us so deeply is what the author is trying to do, which is sort of p- tell a whole journey and paint a whole story to make you cer- think a, a certain way about a certain area of life or something else. And especially uh, in literature, we'll find certain stories that present a very, very strong argument. And so I think a lot of times the stories that shape us the most are the ones that we read or the, one, the movies that we see. When we're really about 12 to 21, I think that's our most, like, when the stories really sort of influence our DNA and shape the way that we look at the world. And so I'm going to talk about, the first story I'm going to talk about is one that I read in high school that sort of changed the way that I looked at a certain subject of Christianity. Uh, and this story is Inherit the Wind. It's actually a, a play. Uh, who's read or knows Inherit the Wind? No one? Okay, great. This is a classic play. It was, uh, it's Pulitzer Prize winning. It was written uh, in 1955 about the uh, 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial, which uh, this, this back then was called the Trial of the Century, way back before OJ, way back before... Um, uh, this was the sort of ultimate culture war trial of the 20th century. And um, growing up, I was raised a... Who, who here would say you grew up in church as a so, sort of around church, whatever else? Yeah, that was me. I grew up in church. I was a pastor's kid. Um, father was a minister. And so I, I was 
taught very early on to think a certain way about subjects. And so I grew up in the 80s and early 90s, and there was just um, a lot of culture war going on there. There was a lot of, um, uh, I mean, I remember as a kid sort of like in, in rallies, like protesting certain things or, or marching for certain things. I was just kind of raised, raised with that. And some of it uh, was good, some of it was kind of complicated, but it could be very complex issues. Anything from abortion to gay marriage to all these sort of, you know, hot button can of worms issues, I was sort of raised around. And I believed passionately and strongly, like, we have a certain worldview and we have to get it out there and we have to prove ourselves right. And I was um, almost, you know, I, was, I read the Bible so much and everything else, it almost as a younger kid kind of made me a little bit of a Pharisee, a little bit judgmental, a little bit like, I know what's right, everyone else is wrong, and I've got to prove being right. And uh, I remember this play that I read in high school, and I've read it in college and read it several times since, uh, but it's this play called Inherit the Wind. And so um, it was, like I said, it was written in 1925. It was written actually as a response to McCarthyism, which was um, all the trials that McCarthy had kind of, there was a communist scare in the 50s, and so he was just pulling different people up, and he was pulling screenwriters out, he was pulling different government agencies up, and just kind of saying, hey, you're a communist, and having these trials about who's really a communist, and created this whole scare in the country about different people were communists, and they were pulled, and they were accused of stuff, and sometimes they didn't even know what they were being accused for. So he wrote this in response to McCarthyism, but there's actually a lot of really interesting, uh, culture war things in this book, or in this play. So in Inherit the Wind, the main characters are Clarence Darrow, who play, or who uh, is Henry Drummond in real life, Williams Jennings Bryant, who is uh, Matthew Harrison Brady in the play, and one of them's kind of the lawyer for the prosecutor, one is the defense lawyer, and essentially the story is this. It's very simple. It's a guy who is arrested for teaching evolution. He's arrested in his hometown because he's brave enough in his school to teach evolution. And the, the town is absolutely livid. The town is absolutely like, how dare you te- This is, Darwinism has just kind of been written in the last century. And so in the 20s, it was just kind of being talked about in scientific communities. And this guy said, you know what? This needs to be taught about in school. And so I'm going to teach evolution. He teaches evolution. He gets arrested for teaching evolution. And then the whole town really wants him uh, punished to the full extent of the law. They want, and so it kind of becomes this trial of man versus faith, science versus faith. And so, uh, this, so what happens is he goes, he goes off to trial. One side is going to defend him. The other side is going to prosecute him. And Really, the, the interesting character in this to me is there's a minister, and his daughter is dating uh, Cates, who is the guy who was arrested for teaching evolution. And so the minister, the, the guy who comes in to prosecute Cates, he's a presidential nominee. He's absolutely like a very, very important man coming into the country. I mean, it would be like um, Rick Santorum coming to defend this guy who's there. So Rick Santorum's coming to town. This pastor goes and he wants to host Rick Santorum. He wants Rick Santorum to look at him as an absolute hero. And the pastor's embarrassed of his own daughter because he's like, how dare she be dating this guy over here who's looking at, uh, who's uh, teaching evolution. And so, but the daughter, she loves this guy. And so she's like, dad, what are you doing? And uh, there's, through the book, there's several days of trial 
after one of the trials, they have a prayer meeting at night. And at the prayer meeting at night, the minister gets up there and he starts decrying this man who's teaching evolution. He says, how dare he teach this? What is he doing? I can't believe he's doing this. His soul, and he starts saying, his soul should be damned for teaching this. He should be punished to the full extent. He, should be, he talks about Pharaoh and he's like, I hope, I hope God treats him as God treated Pharaoh. And so the, at the whole town is getting you know, really uneasy as this minister's just crying out and crying out against this idea. And finally the daughter says, Dad, Dad, please stop. What are you doing? Why are you preaching against this man like that? And then he looks at his daughter and he says, and I hope anyone who stands with this man gets damned as well. And he, and he looks at her and the daughter's just crying and she runs off. And uh, to me, this moment really jumped out as um, a powerful example of sometimes we fight so hard for an ideal. Sometimes we fight so far hard for like, this is how life should be lived. This is the way things are right. We can roll over and hurt people along the way. And I'm not saying that fighting for the ideal isn't right. I'm not saying that being involved in politics is wrong or anything like that. But sometimes when we spend so much energy and so much passion and so much attention on that, we can hurt the people around us. The title is, of this play is Inherit the Wind, and it comes from Proverbs 11.29. He who troubles his own house shall inherit the wind. And so it's, it's really fighting for the ideals instead of fighting for people. And this is one of those books along the way that really made me pause and stop and think and think, sometimes is it better to fight for the individual people rather than just fight for ideas. And so uh, that's the first book that I want to reference. The second book is called The Year of Living Biblically. And this is written by A.J. Jacobs. It came out uh, 2007, much more contemporary. And uh, he's a successful writer. He wrote for Esquire. He wrote for... um, he wrote a book called The Know-It-All, which he reads the encyclopedia from A to Z, all the way from cover to cover. Um, but he's also an agnostic. He doesn't uh, believe in God. He doesn't, he's not really an atheist, but he just kind of, God and religion and faith were never really his things. And so as he goes through life, he's reading uh, this book, the encyclopedia, and he thinks it's the ultimate book. But once he finishes this project, he realizes, you know what? The real ultimate book is the Bible. The Bible has infected our, for good or for bad or whatever I may think about it, the Bible has infected our society and has shaped and influenced our society really, really dramatically. So I don't believe in God. He, he's Jewish, but he says, I'm Jewish in the same way that the Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant. It's just, you know, <laughs> you know, and so he's like, you know, I, I'm Jewish in name, but I wasn't really raised with that as a part of my faith and everything else. So he decides what he's going to do is take a whole year and live exactly by the Bible. Do everything that the Bible says to do, no matter what. He's going to live by every rule of the Bible. He counts up 714 different rules uh, that the Bible gives, different commandments. And he has four rules as he goes into it. The first one that he talks about is which standard of the, or which version of the Bible should I use? And so he he ends up starting with the new revised uh, edition, and he goes and gets King James, NIV, gets a whole stack of different Bibles to read and study from. He also gets um, all sorts of commentaries and study guides and everything else. And it's pretty fascinating to think of never having read the Bible and try to apply it to your life and trying to take everything from the teachings of Paul to the really nuanced teachings of Leviticus and trying to apply all of that into his life. And so he, he 
gets a stack of that. The next question he asks is, what does it mean to follow the Bible literally? And he says, you know, as Joe and others have talked about in here, I'm sure some passages in the Bible are meant to be literal. Some are more like uh, proverbs or metaphors or parables or, you know, and so um, some are a little bit more metaphorical. The next question he asks is, should I obey the Old Testament, New Testament, or both? Uh, He says the Old Testament is... uh, because it's two-thirds of the Bible, he spends two-thirds following the rules in the Old Testament, one-third of his experiment of the year following the rules in the New Testament. Uh, his final question is, should I have guides? And so he finds spiritual advisors, pastors, and everything else to shape his journey. And what's fascinating about this book and what's fascinating about this story is you get, a, you get to see the Bible through fresh eyes. Pastor Brady talks about that a lot. Like, let's read the Bible like we've never read it before. And this is a great book that really talks. He's following a rule for the very first time, and you see that he's learning and he's obeying it. Um, and so the next question that I want to ask, ha- ask amongst all of you before I talk about this a little bit more is, is there a rule or, pa- or teaching from the Bible that you have a specifically either hard time obeying or find it h- hard to understand, like, why is this a rule? Why is this in the Bible? So take about two minutes here, get in your tables and discuss, is there a rule or passage in the Bible that you question or wonder, why do we have to obey this? Circle up and go ahead, go, discuss. Okay, I want to know some examples from the table. What, what were some rules, teachings that you talked about? Raise your hand, be strong. Be, okay, right here. <laughs> First, I want to know some of the things you were talking about at your tables. Okay, so right over here first. Um, one of the big ones I've seen in kind of our culture is rules about homosexuality uh-huh. um, and people not really understanding, um, I don't know, just not really understanding what the Bible says about it or um, kind of being willing to compromise based on uh, stuff that our culture says. Yeah, do you find... Do you find those rules troubling? Do you find, I mean, what, when you look at those, do you think it's more of a cultural thing or how do you look at it? Uh, well, personally, I don't. I mean, I was, I've, you know, read a book about it and I was talking to my table, but, um, but I don't really see the things as, as different than other sin, really. But, um, yeah. but I think a lot of people do compromise and think it's, it's not sinful. Um, uh, but it's something that's, you know, it's against God's design and it's not the way thing should be, but it shouldn't be treated any differently. Um, and I think it's kind of a big, you know, it's a big political issue and um, people sometimes get really involved in like all the politics of it and not aren't sure what the Bible says because people are saying it can be irrelevant or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I do think that's probably the number one for our generation, uh, one of the ones that is being debated about, being talked about, and how we talk about uh, that that issue and those teachings in the Bible is very, it's extremely important. And kind of what I was talking about with Inherit the Wind as well, uh, if, if we crusade against it too strong, we're hurting, we're fighting for an ideal, but hurting the people. And so uh, all the tensions there with that. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, other ones, yeah, right over here. So personally, um, one that I struggle with, and it's kind of embarrassing, is... Um, is, you know, treating people the way you want to be treated. Uh, a lot of times, like, we know that we need to humble ourselves and serve others. And I have a coworker who is a mystic <laughs> and a Satanist. 
and we both work in a very small quarters and he's very strong and very opinionated yeah. and very negative towards pretty much everyone who comes into our office and it's very hard to I guess it's kind of a defense mechanism. I right. kind of talk down to him, and I find myself being prideful. And he knows that I'm a Christian. Like, this is a very strong belief that I have. Yeah. And I've had to find, I've found myself apologizing to him many times for how I've reacted to him. And it's extremely difficult to battle every day. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. Uh, love your neighbor passages and what that really means. And being slow to anger and all these things that, like, to apply them, how tricky they are. That's, that's great. Okay. One more? Yeah, right back there. Um, <clears throat> I'd say a hard one for me is uh, getting even or like retaliation when or turning the other cheek. Whenever somebody wrongs you, not getting back at them, either even being passive aggressive because we kind of do that without realizing it. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's turning the other cheek is one of the most difficult ones because you have to, you know, your sense of justice swells up. And your sense of justice says, no, I was wronged. I was hurt. I want, I want justice. I want retribution. I want revenge even. And so really sort of get forgiving and get, extending that sort of grace is another really tricky one. Um, one of the ones he, he talks about, obviously, lots and lots of them, and just spends a day, part of the way he goes through this book A.J. Jacobs, is he spends a day trying to apply different ones of the rules. And one of the interesting passages I found was on coveting. And he said, uh, uh, it's the 10th commandment, Exodus twenty seventeen, you shall not covet. And so um, I'm going to just read a little excerpt, and you can see kind of how he processes coveting, which a lot of people would say coveting isn't necessarily wrong, you know, people outside of, you know, Christianity would say, coveting isn't wrong, it isn't hurting anyone else, it's just wanting something. And so this is how he looks at coveting. Day six, after a day devoted to the obscure, I'm craving some good old-fashioned Ten Commandments to bring me back into the mainstream. Since I break this commandment every day, I decide, you shall not covet, is most in need of immediate action. This commandment is the final one of ten, and the only one to relate to a state of mind, not behavior. It's also arguably the hardest, especially modern-day New York City. This is a city that runs on covering. It's 2 p.m., and here's a list of the things I've coveted since I woke up. Uh, Jonathan's first speaking fee. Someone told me he gets $15,000 per lecture. The Trio 700 PDA, which I find really fun. This was written in 2007, and I'm like, a Trio 700 PDA? Anyone ever covet that? But, you know, <laughs> what a difference a few years made phones. Uh, the mental calm of the guy at the Bible bookstore who said he had no fear because he walked with God. Our friend Elizabeth's sprawling suburban front yard. The George Clooney level of fame that allowed you to say whatever you feel like, moronic or not. The brilliant screenplay for the 1990 movie Office Space. I sometimes have a weird fantasy that I could go back to 1997 with a videotape, transcribe the dialogue, and beat writer Mike Judge to the punch. But how do you stop yourself from coveting? The word covet is a translation of the Hebrew root hamad, roughly equivalent to desire or want. There are two schools of thought of what the commandment is preventing. Some interpreters say that coveting in and of itself isn't forbidden. It's not always bad to yearn. It's coveting your neighbor's stuff that's forbidden. As one rabbi puts it, it's okay to covet a jaguar, but you shouldn't covet your neighbor's jaguar. In other words, if your desire might lead you to harm your neighbor, then it's wrong. 
But others say coveting any Jaguar is wrong, whether it's your neighbors or the one at the dealership. A moderate interest in cars is okay. However, coveting means that you were overly desirous of the Jaguar, you were distracted by material goods, you have veered from the path of being thankful for what God provides. You have, no doubt, fallen victim to advertising, the Tenth Commandment's arch nemesis. To play it safe, I'm trying to avoid both types of coveting. Julie rejects one of my strategies. I asked her to censor all newspaper and magazines by ripping out all the ads for iPods and Jamaican vacations and such. Instead, I've been forced to cut down my magazine consumption to a trickle. But coveting material goods and ads isn't a big hurdle for me. My real weakness is jealousy of others. The relentless comparison to my peers. Am I more successful than Julie's ex-boyfriend who invented a lighting gadget that fits over the page of a book so you can read it at night? It's been featured on the cover of uh, Levenger Catalog, as my mother-in-law reminds me often. It's not the ex-boyfriend, it's someone else. And this type of coveting will never be assurged. If I get some crazy quirk or twist, twist of fate accounting error, if I were to get Jonathan Sephora's speaking fee, then I move right on to coveting Madeline Albright's speaking fee. The Bible is right. Jealousy is useless, time-wasting emotion that's eating me alive. I should focus on my family, and nowadays, God. Of course, stopping an emotion isn't easy. The prevailing paradigm is that we can't control our passions. As Woody Allen said, when his affair with Sun Yun was discovered, the heart wants what it wants. But I can't just give up. I need a new point of view. So I consult my spiritual advisory board. One recommended method is to tell yourself that the coveted car, job, house, speaking fee, donkey, is not just a possibility. A medieval rabbi, uh, Abraham Ibn Ezra, uses this example. He's talking about the sexual sense of covet, but you can apply it more broadly. When you see a pretty married woman married to another man, you have to put her in the same class as your mother. She's off-limit. The very notion of her is repulsive, unthinkable, uh, except to those who are perverts or have read too much Freud. (laughs) Or else, think of a woman as a peasant would a princess. She's she's pretty, but she's far out of your realm. Your admiration is abstract, uh, not levacious. I try to do this with Sephora's speaking speed. It's outside of my realm, I say. The strategy runs counter to you can do anything, set your mind to ambition, but it's better for my mental health. And then there's this tactic. If you're intently focusing on the rules of the Bible, you don't have time to covet. Not as much, anyway. You're too busy. A couple of weeks ago, my daily coveting list would have taken up one-third of this book. Now, I've trimmed it down to a half page. Progress, I think. And so, I just like this book because you get to look at rules, and he's not preaching at you or whatever else, but you just get to see how sort of an agnostic processes these different rules and the benefits that sometimes obeying the rules that we don't completely understand uh, and just giving it our all, the ways that that can impact our life for the positive. So uh, A.J. Jacobs' Year of Living Biblically is uh, the second one. The final uh, piece of literature, and lots and lots of them have shaped my faith, but the final one that I want to hit is one of them that has become one of my life messages. Often when I talk, I tell this story, and it's the story of the lady or the tiger. Who's, who's read or heard the lady or the tiger? A few of you? Okay, great. So... Uh, This was published by Frank Stockton in 1882. It was published in a magazine called The Century. And uh, the story goes like this. Essentially, there's a king who believes in... um, He's tired of punishing people. He's tired of judging. He's tired of uh, having to decide everyone's fate. 
So he believes that if someone's accused for a crime, he comes up with a great new idea and a great new way that he's going to publish people. He create, he, they have this arena. Imagine like a Roman Colosseum like you see in Gladiator. So they have this huge arena, and behind one door, he puts a beautiful, fair maiden. And so he says... She's there behind the one door. Behind the other door, number two, is a tiger, bloodthirsty tiger, that is absolutely going to kill you. Okay? And so the way that his judging works in his kingdom is he goes, when someone's committed a crime, they're pushed out in a circle. Everyone's cheering, chanting. It's always switched. Which door is which? And so he goes, the guy who's committed a crime goes, looks at the door, and has to point, and he has to guess which one has the lady and which one has the tiger. And if he guesses right and picks the lady, then the king says, well, he must be innocent. If he guesses wrong, then the king says, well, he's obviously guilty. He's being eaten by a tiger. And so that's his sense of justice in this kingdom. And so what happens is he goes, and this king has a beautiful daughter. And there's like a servant boy, kind of imagine Carioles and Princess Bride, just as you wish. He's sort of in love with the princess, but she's absolutely forbidden. And so he goes, and he's... uh, he gets to know her some, and they, they get flirting and everything else. And he, he knows it's completely forbidden. It's completely against the law to date this girl. But he decides, you know what, I'm going to go after her. I'm going to court her. I'm going to pursue her anyway. And so one night, they're going through a moonlit, beautiful stroll in the king's garden. And there's rose bushes, everything else. And he can't help himself. And they have this just, just kind of moment, and they kiss. And the king is standing outside of his window. And he looks down at him, and he says, that boy is going to trial. That night, he has the boy arrested, and he has the boy thrown into the Colosseum. And so the next day they go, and he's going to be put on trial. But the the fair maiden is torn, and she's angry that this has happened. And so she runs down, and she has to ask the guard. She says, which which door is going to have the lady, and which door is going to have the tiger? So the guard tells her. And so the next day, the boy is there. He's, it's like Mile High Stadium, like a Bronco game. He's pushed out. Everyone's chanting. They're holding up signs. Big door number one. No door number two. They're chanting. They're chanting. He walks out there. He looks at the two doors. The princess is up in this sort of balcony with all the king and everything else. And he briefly glances at her. And she subtly glances at the door she should pick. She says, pick that one right there. So he walks up to it. He grabs the door handle. He starts to open it, and the story ends like this. So I ask you, which came out, the lady or the tiger? So take a moment and discuss which came out, the lady or the tiger. Okay, I want to know answers. Who, kn- who knows which came out? Who, who has thoughts? Which came out, the lady or the tiger? They both have a tiger. <laughs> I am glad you are not the king. You are a scary man. <laughs> that is messed up, man. <laughs> who else? What came out? The lady or the tiger? Just what do you think? Tiger, why? Oh. <laughs> so can, but she would have picked the lady for him, you think. You think, who, let me just show of hands. Who thinks that the woman would have picked the lady? Who thinks the woman would have picked the lady? Who thinks the woman would have picked the tiger? All right? When I re- this story is one of the stories that inflect- infected my faith dramatically because when I, when I read it, uh, my senior year in high school in this English class, I read it, and I was furious. I was like, 
this is such a great story. I was hooked the whole way. And how could he not tell which is going to come out? The Lady or the Tiger? How could he not let us know? And so finally, readers of this story, this was published in a magazine. This story became debated around the country. And everyone asked. And the author would never say, would never say which came out. And finally, at the end of his life, he sat down for an interview. And the guy said, okay, so you have to tell us once and for all, what came out? The Lady or the Tiger? And the author looked at the interviewer and he said, it's not important what I say came out. It's important what you say came out. And I remember that hit me as I read this interview because he said, this story is about the matter of a heart. This story is about the matter of your heart. And what do you choose for other people? Do you choose the lady, even though it may hurt you a little bit, hurt your feelings a little bit, or you, do you feel, choose the tiger because you're going to feel better and you're going to be okay with it? And so what, what's going on in your heart? And I'm going to tell one last story, and then I'll wrap up today. But as I, as I read that interview, and as I read that moment, and I was, like I said, I grew up a pastor's kid, but towards, towards the end of my high school career, I just became cynical. I was just not sure what I thought about Christianity or anything else. And so I remember I went on this camping trip, and this is the story of two girls. And the first girl, uh, she was there, and she, kind of like the friend that you were talking about, she wore black every day, she, very gothic. She had like this crystal that, you know, I tried to, I was like, oh, that's a cool necklace. And she's like, no, don't touch the crystal. All the power will go out of it. And so I was like, that's weird. You know, she used the word cauldron a lot and was just like, she was very just kind of like mystic and all that sort of stuff. And so we sat in this class and I was still, you know, trained about faith and everything. So I'd have lots of discussions with her about faith and God, and she didn't believe in God, and I did, and so we would discuss that back and forth and back and forth. (coughs) Excuse me. Then there was this other girl, and she was like, when she walked down the hallway, it was like all of time stopped, like wind blew through her hair, and if you listen carefully, you could hear mermaids going, ah, ah, ah. She just like growled, and so I was just like... I was like, wow, I've, perhaps you noticed I'm a boy, you know. Uh, so I, I, just, I just totally had a crush on this girl. And so anyway, we had this like senior river rafting trip. And we went and we were river rafting. And it was this like great time, couple weeks on the river, all that sort of stuff. And I remember one night we were all hanging out and that sort of stuff. And then I, was, I got to sit by the super, you know, beautiful girl. And, um, and she was like, as the night was going down, she was like, hey, uh, a few of my friends and I are going back to my tent. You want to come back to the tent and hang out? And I said, what any good pastor's son would say, and was like, yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> so I went, and I went, I went to the tent with her and a few of the friends, and then she went, and uh, she pulled out a little bag of something, and it looks like oregano, and I thought, what are we going to do, like cook some chicken? Like, what's about, what's about to go on right here? And so she went, and she took the oregano thing and put it in a pipe-looking thing, and I was like, huh, that's, that's strange. And then she lit the pipe, and they, they started smoking it and passing it around the circle, and finally it came, and it came to me, and it came to my turn. And, and what I should have probably been thinking about was, this is wrong, don't do it, you know, you're on a, you're on a senior trip, you can get in trouble, all that sort of stuff, uh, I should be a better example. But all I could think about was, what is she going to think of me if I don't smoke from this, what is she going to think? Like, she actually likes me. I actually have a chance. Like, prom's in a month. I, there, there's a chance that, you know, that could happen. And so uh, I went and I 
took the pipe and I smoked from it. And then we went, we were all hanging out and everything else like that and just laughing and it was fun. I was like, this is great. And after about, you know, half hour, I was like, dude, I really need some chocolate, man. <laughs> chocolate is important. And so I went and we were just laughing and smoking and all of a sudden I went and I unzipped the tent and I'm getting out and smoke's kind of billowing up behind me and I'm getting out. And right as I'm getting out, the, the gothic girl was there and she walked up and she just kind of looked down at me. And she said, huh, I thought you were different. And she walked off. And um, today, here I am. I'm in Mill Sunday School. I work at a church. I believe in God. My life, totally fine. I'm great. But for her, I picked the tiger for her life. Because I was selfish. Because I wanted to focus solely on myself in a moment. And that story impacted me so much because I realized sometimes what I've always thought was sin is sometimes with sin, it, in, it just impacts us. And I've thought, well, I can turn to God. I can repent. I can go back there. But often our sin is picking the tiger for someone else's life. We're going to be totally and completely fine and okay through our sin. We'll, we'll come out of it. God's grace will reach down. But it's going to impact people that we may never have a chance to impact again. And that's one of those things that has resonated with me and stayed with me for a long time. So as you go and as you read stories and as you think about them, I, ho- I hope you, as you watch movies, as you read books, you think about what's really being said there and you realize the impact that stories can have and you realize the impact that your actions and your life can have on others. All right? So let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your teachings, Lord, and we thank you for having a place like Mill Sunday School where we can look at other sources like stories, like literature, to understand you better, to understand what you want for us better, Lord. And I pray as we go into this week, Lord, as we have all sorts of challenges, as we have all sorts of things to overcome, Lord, I pray that you would let us focus on you, Lord, that we would live biblically, that we would live according to your rules and according to your ways, Lord. And even though we'd slip up at times and whatever else, Lord, that we would strive to live for you, Lord, that we would strive to pick the best, not only for our lives, but for the people around us, Lord. We thank you. We pray that this would be a community that we can continue to strengthen and encourage and push each other in. In your name, everyone said, amen. Have a great Sunday. Thank you so much for letting me share this morning. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Mills Sunday School Podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.